Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. This week, we're continuing our series of live recordings from SASDOC 2018. In this series, we're picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing SaaS companies. These are folks that have built SaaS companies from the ground up and will expose frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business. This week, Patrick Campbell, co-founder and CEO of ProfitWell, the business intelligence platform that helps companies like Atlassian, Autodesk, Meetup and Lyft level up their monetization and retention strategies. For the past few years, Patrick has been the leading authority on topics such as SaaS pricing, SaaS metrics and bootstrapping, having grown ProfitWell from zero to 50 people with no VC funding. In addition to being a pricing and customer development guru, Patrick is a master public speaker, and he's also a former debate team national champion. As you might have guessed, all of these things combined make for one heck of a discussion. Over the course of my conversation with Patrick, we talk about why he left his job as an economist at the NSA to start building software, the density of marketing channels today and how to break through the noise, and the biggest pitfalls to avoid when pricing your products. Finally, to hear previous episodes from our SaaS Stock series, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's hop over to our conversation with Patrick. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Patrick, welcome to Inside Intercom. Maybe just to get us started, could you bring us through uh, your sort of career trajectory to date and how you ended up running ProfitWell? Absolutely. So my career, uh, so I'm from a small town in the middle of Wisconsin, um, you know, grew up on a, you know, basically a farm with more cows than people, essentially. And so that's, <laughs> that kind of shapes a lot. So I like to throw that in there. Um, ended up, you know, basically wanting to be a doctor than wanting to be a lawyer, which is kind of like the standard, like lower middle class, like trajectory Your family was laborers. And then you want to go into, you know, kind of the next rung, if you will. Uh, but ended up going to school for economics and um, rhetoric, actually, um, which is kind of a weird combination, um, mainly because I went there on a debate scholarship. And so it was one of those things where it was relatively easy and I could learn a lot about math and statistics. Uh, out of school, I, I worked for the U.S. intelligence community. Um, so that was really interesting because it was post 9-11, pre-Snowden, uh, which is also an interesting you know, kind of thing that we can maybe go off on a tangent off, off audio here. Uh, and that's where I basically learned a lot about um, economic modeling in a very practical case. Because when you're hunting a, a bad guy or gal, um, when it comes to intelligence, you know, there's a lot of different things that you have to you know, understand and you have to work through the problem. And from there, I, I didn't really like uh, working for the U.S. government. Uh, it's very, very bureaucratic, as most governments are. And it wasn't that I, I didn't feel the mission. It just was, it, it would take a long time to get things sure. done. And, and that learning curve slowed down. And so I went and worked at Google. Um, and that's where I came to Boston from D.C. And at Google, I was, I was working like sales and sales operations, kind of doing very similar things. But instead of hunting bad guys or gals, hunting money. Yeah. And so it was a very, very interesting kind of, again, making very practical applications of things. I didn't like the bureaucracy again. Uh, so when you're in a I'm company of, a theme. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a theme. I think it's a, you know, I, I come from, again, that blue collar background and, you know, kind of a, a, a no BS union dad, if that makes sense. And he's also in the military. And so it was like a, a very, very low pension for, for BS essentially. And so ended up, you know, wanting to leave there because I had worked on a project that, 
made Google quite a lot of money, but it was one of those things where Google, being its size, is basically, hey, that's not a good priority if this other project is going to make more money. And it wasn't that I didn't get any cash. I got this award and stuff like that. It was more that they were going to shut the project down, and I was just like, I'm not learning enough. Uh, so I worked at another startup in Boston, one that does uh, customizable jewelry, mm. kind of like Blue Nile. Right. Uh, you can kind of pick your gemstone, pick the ring, etc. That's the first time I started working on pricing and started really, really on a micro level applying value models to trying to determine value within a business. And again, didn't really love the culture, which is, you know, another, I'm thinking through this as I'm saying this and I'm like, oh boy, didn't love the culture, wasn't like super enamored by it. And so thought, you know, if there's any time in my life, I can always worst case scenario, get a job. I can go be a barista. I can go do something. Um, I can go dig ditches or, or whatever. And so jumped out and cashed in my very small 401k, which is like a retirement fund in the, in the States. And uh, had like nine months of runway in Boston, which it was not enough money really for nine months, but living very, very poorly for nine months um, and took the risk and, and started, started the company essentially. And it's been about six years. Um, we're fully bootstrapped. Um, so we've you know, grown to about 60 people and I finally pay myself a little bit of money, uh, which is good. So I can kind of survive. So that's kind of the, the trajectory so far. Great. So you kind of mentioned about the debate scholarship. So I believe you're a national debate champion as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have, um, I have a national oratory champion. Right. Uh, so it's a little bit different than debate you may have seen on, on TV. It's called individual events. So it's, it's interesting because you're an individual competitor, but you're also on a team. So I went to a school that consistently ranks top three for the national tournaments. So you can actually, you know, get into national finals and multiple events. So I, I, in my career, I've had 13 national finals. And then um, the one title that I won, we also won the team title my, my senior year as well, um, was an oratory, which sure. is kind of like a, a platform 10-minute speech that you prepare. Um, and it was actually on the education system in the United States. And uh, how do you think that that's, on reflection, helped you in the, in the world of business? That and working at the NSA has probably been the most bedrock things. And the reason for that is because... There's this event called Extemp that I turned out to be, you know, fairly good at. And Extemp is where when you go to the round and you do three rounds and then if you break at nationals, you get to quarterfinals, semifinals, and then finals. And the finals are essentially the top six in the nation. And what they do is when you go to the round, you get you draw three questions and they're all geopolitical. So for my last national final, it was something like, um, I believe it was how will the Russian-Venezuelan oil deal affect U.S. relations with Belarus? And so you get a question like that and you, you're like, what? And um, you have 30 minutes to prepare and you've filed, you've done a lot of research where you have these tubs of files that are basically just news sources from every single news source you can think of, from The Economist to the Agence France-Presse to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And you prepare a seven-minute speech with, in a national final, you probably need 14 sources and you have to memorize all this and create the, create the argument in 30 minutes. And then you go give it flawlessly in front of a room full of hundreds of people at that level. And so that was, that's, it's pressure, you know, it's, mm. it's a lot of pressure cooking. And I think for me, it, structuring an argument and thinking through a problem, I think that was the biggest thing. And then helping to communicate that particular problem or try to find the truth in it, I, I couldn't have asked for a better training. Um, and it wasn't something that I thought I was going to go into and it's an event that I didn't really respect. Um, and it was one of those things where it, 
one of the best things happened in my career. Sure. So, I mean, yeah. podcasts like this must be a walk in the park for you then. So, Well, uh, I, I get a little wordy, as you can see, because I want to cover all of the points and I, I try to be as structured as possible. And yeah, it makes me a little bit of a robot, but sure. I think it's one of those things that uh, it net nets out pretty well, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. So you're kind of maybe best known as the expert in pricing in certainly in B2B SaaS. Mm-hmm. Uh, what sort of uh, advice do founders come looking for you as to pertains to, to pricing? We've thought or I've thought about pricing in the world of subscriptions probably a lot more than most people. I think there's a lot I'm still trying to figure out. But I think that a lot of times what ends up happening, especially with pricing, is that people are the advice that people want is like, what's the silver bullet, right? Mm. Like most things, like Intercom is, you know, one of the best companies in the world in product. Mm. And, you know, people are like, well, how do you do good products? And it's mm. like, well, there's a lot of factors that make you good at product. Mm. And there's a lot of things that you have to do to be good at product. And I think with pricing, a lot of people, they want a silver bullet and they don't realize that like your price is the exchange rate on the value that you're providing. And so when you look at pricing in that context, all of a sudden there's a lot of different pieces that you have to think about with your pricing, but it also has a little bit of comfort because it's, it's kind of a centralized problem. And so the top things that I recommend is, is, is really understanding who your personas are, who you're actually trying to sell to. Uh, and then the jobs to be done, which I know Intercom, you know, is, is is a big proponent of. And the reason for that is because when you do those things in context, all of a sudden it starts to center what your pricing strategy should look like, which really is is less about like what you should do and more about what you shouldn't do. Like who should you not target? Who should you not go after? Who should you not price for? And then the more tactical piece, um, you know, is, is really around value metrics, pricing along some sort of value metric. So Intercom, you price based on people as well as features. Um, that people aspect is super, super important because if you get everything else wrong, but you get that value metric right, and it'll be different for other types of businesses, that typically um, will carry most of your pricing forward. But there's no silver bullet. It's a process, unfortunately. Uh, I wish there was a silver bullet. I've been trying to find one uh, so I can sell it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's not uh, It's not that simple, not that straightforward, unfortunately. So, I mean, you're probably talking to like a lot of early stage startups here at SaaStock. I mean, a sort of common trap that, you know, I think a lot of early stage startups are falling into is maybe pricing too low, mm. you know, but obviously in the same way that if you go to a restaurant and, you know, buy a $3 steak, it actually kind of ends up, you know, restricting your clientele. Yeah. So, I mean, when someone comes to you in terms of like talking about low pricing, like what sort of the advice do you, that you give them? Yeah, I think historically European companies, uh, especially in the world of SaaS and subscriptions, do price their products too low. I, I I don't know why. I think it's I do think there's a bit of a psychological phenomenon, especially in the Eastern Bloc and the Nordics, because of like post-Soviet. Um, or during the Soviet era, you didn't get access to new technology. And mm-hmm. so it became about being really, really good at engineering and really, really good at efficiency. And then what happened was, is you were like, well, this isn't that great. I, this is just normal, you know, being really, really good at efficiency and technology. And sales is not a good thing. Sales is a sneaky thing, right? And so what happened is we, we or Europe, really devalued its work, I would argue. Um, but yeah, that is historically what we see. And in the US, on the flip side, normally the prices are a bit too high. Uh, that's probably a whole arrogant American tangent that we can go on. But anyways, I think when, when you're pricing too low, what ends up happening is you have a phenomenon where the people who are willing to pay that price, oftentimes they're willing to pay much more. And then there's a good crop of people who actually don't trust that you're able to do what you're able to do. Mm. So if Intercom said, hey, we're going to give this to you for 100,000 people for $10 per month, mm. there's clearly something wrong. You're right. doing Alarm something. Alarm bells are going off. Yeah, the, the product isn't great. It's going to be a waste of my time, especially if I'm a legitimate customer who has 
you know, the potential for a hundred thousand, you know, people. And so I think the price, the recommendation is just to do some research. That's really what the crux of pricing is, is just doing some sort of customer development around, um, asking customers or target customers in the right manner about where their willingness to pay is and, and asking them in ranged questions, because what you can then do is you can just level set and be very dispassionate about, Hey, this is where the price should be, or, Hey, this price should be here. And this customer is way over here we have to pick a customer now instead of averaging it out because you can't be everything to all people. Sure. Uh, You've also written a lot about the topic of freemium as well. I think you described it as, um, put it pretty well as, you know, often it's sneaking leads into your funnel. So could you maybe tease it out a little bit and maybe talk us through the sort of the pros and and, and the cons of freemium? Yeah, I think freemium freemium is absolutely the future for most companies. Mm -hmm. And, And the reason is, is because what we've noticed in the market, and we have actually the data for this, is that basically the, the proliferation of technology has made building a company relatively easy. Not building a great company, not building a good product, but building just a company, spinning up a server, spinning up a website. So what's happened is you have just rampant competition. More and more people are flooding marketing channels. We're not getting new marketing channels every single year, every single quarter like we once were. So there's all this density happening. Now the answer to density was going from PPC to content. Now content's getting dense. There's a lot of people who are good at very good content. Now you can try to make excellent content, but it's a logarithmic curve from very good to, to excellent, right? It's not something where it's just linear, oh, we'll just put in some more work. It's a lot more work. So you think about that and all of a sudden it's like, well, how can I get good leads? Well, now it's gonna become about building product. Like if I can actually give you some value with a product, then all of a sudden I might be able to get those leads and then the unit economics work out. And we've seen this in the data around CAC as well as in the data around even NPS scores. You know, people who come into a product based off of a freemium plan, they have, uh, I shouldn't quote this because I don't have the data in front of me, but but noticeably higher NPS scores than the people who convert just from, you know, a sales conversation. <laughs> and the reason for this is, is that freemium is an acquisition model. It's not a revenue model. Mm-hmm. You should only really have a freemium plan when you're probably on average three to four years into a business, you understand your customer enough that you can understand how to convert them from free to paid. Uh, But I think the pros are are very, they're starting to become very, very obvious. The cons are is that a free product can't be bad. Like it has to be good. Like it has to be as good as a paid product. So we have a free product that rivals the paid products that are in the market. And we spend an exorbitant amount of engineering and product resources on continuing to develop that product. And so right now, uh, depending on kind of your funding situation, your resource situation, freemium can be a very, very expensive in a very uh, kind of we had to basically stop some of our development or our trajectory because we knew this was the future. So we had to kind of slow down in some areas to speed up in this area. Um, there's plenty I can get further into, but I think that that's, that's the big kind of crux, I would argue. With yeah, premium. it's kind of interesting you mentioned is you see a lot of companies now moving from sort of like maybe marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads to like product qualified leads because, you know, people provided they're on a free trial and they're showing some sort of intent, getting some sort of value and product that actually can, you know. Yeah result in customers that are actually like exponentially like more valuable to your business, I think. Yeah, I think that it's the whole inbound marketing movement was basically this this huge shift in, okay, let's stop being pushy. Let's start having people come to us. I think of freemium and just the 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 ability to start creating better and better product, which is extremely difficult, but it's no longer about the technical like aspects. We've we figured a lot of those out. There's always gonna be like big problems, especially mm-hmm. when you scale. But it's not like we're worrying about, oh, man, I got to keep the servers up and running. Like, that's not an issue for us anymore. Um, Or the physical servers, I mean. Yeah, virtual servers, you have to still keep up and running. But 
I think what's happening is because of that shift in the market, we're now moving to a shift where, hey, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to go even further away from you as a lead. I'm going to wait for you to come to me. I'm going to nurture you uh, in some particular manner, and I'm not going to try to be pushy because at the end of the day, as long as you know I exist, when you have the need, I want to be the first person you come to for that need, if that makes sense. Sure. And so maybe a lot of the companies you might be talking to as well at the moment are lucky enough to be growing and you know maybe targeting you know upmarket customers or maybe even enterprise. What sort of advice do you give to customers who are thinking about raising their prices or is there any sort of examples that you see have gone particularly well or particularly bad? So I I think the first thing to get your mind around is you shouldn't grandfather your existing customers. That's not a common term in Europe. So Mm. basically what that means is that for a lot of people, we think that our existing customers should keep the same price for the life of them being a customer. It's, it's a really good idea. It's a really, it feels really good. The problem is, is that when you go from zero to 10 million, it works because you're hitting on those first layers and those first channels of growth. Once you get over 10 million, just from an analytical perspective, it's extremely difficult to go from 10 to 100 without raising prices on your customers in some way. Now, for a lot of us, we have a lot of constraints where it's going to be hard to build another product that we can sell to them because there's, you know, there's a little bit of survivor bias. There's, you know, a lot of problems with, you know, getting one product right, let alone two or three. And so we have to improve our current product and then raise the price for those customers. Now, what you can do is you can make this an easy transition. And that means if you have support problems, if you have NPS issues, you shouldn't be raising your prices. You need to go solve those product problems first. But assuming that those are okay and you've added value, Customers of B2C and B2B realize that things cost money. Again, the price is the exchange rate on that value that you're providing. And because of that, what you can end up doing is basically pushing forward and basically being very direct with them and saying, listen, we've provided a ton of value. This is great for you. It's great for us. For us to continue to providing you more value, we do need to raise our prices. Here's what the prices are. You can soften this language with a lot of things. Um, The first thing is you can provide a grandfather discount hey, you've been such a loyal customer. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to give you the next year for their current price. And then after a year, this discount will fall off. One really nice thing I like to use, I picked this up from Expensify, is in the PS of this email, mm-hmm. put, if this materially impacts your business, please reach out and we'll work something right. out. Mm-hmm. Because you want a little bit of a relief valve. Because there mm-hmm. are some people that when a price increase goes up, it might, it might be very disastrous for mm-hmm. them, especially in B2B software. And so you also want people who are kind of in the middle, who are, let's say, troublemakers, uh, to say that's nicely. (laughs) You also want them to rethink being kind of a butthead, if that makes sense. You want them to rethink, like, complaining about, yes, I'm getting so much more value, but I always want the lowest price. I'm kind of that customer myself. And so, like, I want to realize or I want those types of people to really think about before they email and saying, hey, this materially impacts my business. Uh, But that helps kind of soften things. And then... Oftentimes, you will want some sort of a salvage offer that your customer success team or whomever is handling kind of the communication to basically, in case someone is, you know, very upset, that you can offer them, you know, something to, to basically, you know, satiate their, their feelings. But I think the biggest thing is you just kind of make some movement. Deadlines are probably the biggest tactic here. Mm-hmm. Say, listen, we are going to do this by Q2 of this year and then start super small. Uh, your pricing change doesn't always have to be raising the price. It can mm-hmm. be hey, we're moving this feature here, we're reducing our value metric, a whole host of different things that you can do. Um, Start small and just get some momentum and and getting comfortable doing it. Sure, because I think, you know, one of the core tenets of of pricing you discuss is kind of this this idea of, you know, ongoing optimization, but it kind of strikes me as like pricing isn't 
as simple to, you know, optimize as, you know, like your landing page or like a acquisition channel or something like that. So how do you sort of optimize pricing on an on an ongoing basis without, yeah. you know, causing potential totally. damage? Yeah, it I mean it should be as easy as testing your landing page. I think the problem is, is a lot of technology and infrastructure have held us back. Um, just think of billing systems, right? You know, Stripe has made it relatively easy, but you also need an engineer typically mm. to, to build a new plan, right? Yeah. Or to build some sort of backend that mm. allows someone to create a plan. Uh, most of the other subscription management systems, it's, it's easier, but it's not incredibly easy to kind of manage all those plans. Some of them are working on this problem, but I think that, you have to think about monetization as more than just the price because what you're effectively trying to do is increase your ARPU. That's really what you're trying to do. And, and raising your price is only one way to do that. Um, other ways to do that is finding better proportions of customers. So realizing, hey, our Facebook leads, those customers always choose this low-end plan. Our SEO leads choose the high-end plan. How do we optimize our SEO? Um, it gets into product road mapping, thinking about what are the things that are going to optimize these upgrade paths. Add-on strategies are probably one of the least used but high, most highly impact without being really incredibly difficult to figure out because I guarantee you in most B2B software products, uh, 20%, probably up to about 30%, we see this pretty consistently, of your base is willing to pay for priority support. Mm. So there's all these different vectors that comes with like working on a price to increase that particular ARPU. Uh, and that gets into even expansion revenue and things like that. And so there's a lot of things that you can dig into. Um, one really kind of quick tactic, especially for European companies is, um, and even U.S. companies who are selling into Europe, is if you have more than 15% of your base outside of your home region, you should be doing price localization, meaning cosmetically your price shows up as the currency of that person where they're buying, but also that you're capturing the demand differently because someone willing to pay for intercom in the United States, the willingness to pay is going to be very, very different than someone in Dublin because the cost of living is different, the penetration is different, all these types of things in terms of the market are very, very different. So ultimately, it's, it's just kind of going back to thinking through the problem and understanding which vectors you can kind of play with. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. 
the first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Profitwell is a fully uh, bootstrap business, uh, yep. something I know you're very proud of. Uh, I'm sure you've had plenty of offers uh, over the yeah. years, but maybe talk us through the the rationale behind you know staying fully bootstrapped. Totally, I, I don't know if we're particularly proud of it, if that makes sense. Okay, we get we get kind of we, we kind of get grouped in with the chip on our shoulder bootstrappers, <laughs> okay. if that makes sense. Uh, and we like them, and, and mm. we we like being bootstrapped. I, I think we were very fortunate that our ACV and our kind of um, target customer, we had the luxury of being able to bootstrap. But it has its it has its costs to it, um, particularly because you know there are certain areas of growth that might have taken timeline off of our development that we didn't have cash for to accelerate. Uh, I think that we probably will raise money at some point. Um, I I mean if we don't have to, of course we shouldn't, right? But if we are looking at something where we understand our numbers, we understand the vectors for our own growth, and we don't raise money that might be actually be negligent to the company and to our, you know, our, our stakeholders, which is the people who work there. So I, I think funding, you know, the end of most of funding versus no funding debates is funding is a tool. Uh, so let's just skip to the end. You know, it's a tool, right? You know, Intercom, you guys, you know, raise a bunch of money because it was a tool to just accelerate growth. That doesn't mean you're bad at product and you just hired salespeople. It just means that you deployed that capital really, really efficiently, probably less efficiently than you want because yeah. that's just kind of mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. But um, it's forced us not having cash to be extremely efficient, mm-hmm. probably to a fault. Like our LTV to CACs are very, very high. And we kind of were like, oh, that's really great. And then we're like, wait a minute, that means we're not spending enough money to grow, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we've run it really lean. I also think that we were in a business or in a world that speed didn't help us mainly because the market was is very weird. You know, mm. we serve subscriptions in SaaS. That market from a logo perspective isn't growing exponentially. Mm. Uh, and so meaning we have like 40 to 60,000 target leads and maybe half of those are Johnny and Jane startups or small companies. Mm. And then the other half, there's probably a good group of those that are mega enterprise, which we're not really going after. Sure. So all of a sudden it's like we don't have a huge market. And so we have to kind of think very diligently about how we're going to go after that market. Um, so long story short, I think it's um, it's a tool, and sure. we'll probably use it at some point, uh, most likely. But right now, we like our optionality, and we don't want to use it until we kind of know what we're going to do with it. And, and I think it's particularly interesting at the moment. We've seen companies like Buffer and Wistia, actually, yeah. you know, who are traditionally VC funded, actually, you know, buying out their original investors. Do you think that's a trend that we're maybe going to see more of? I think we're going to see more of it mainly because a lot of the companies that we're building. <laughs> They're not, it's not that they're not innovative. I'm really good friends with the Wistia guys, so I got to make sure that I don't piss Chris and Brennan off here. Um, but it's, it's more that if we wanted to build Wistia today, mm. there's a lot of scaling things that would be very, very difficult. But the technology there, it's, it's, it's not nuclear fusion reactors, mm. right? You think about building a CRM 10 years ago, it was like building a nuclear fusion <laughs> reactor. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it was, right? Because we, we, we kind of take for granted the cloud, you know, DevOps, all of these different things. Uh, and if we wanted to build a CRM today, we don't need to raise money. We already know what 18 months of our roadmap looks like. And maybe we do need to raise money because we're not going to be able to go to market without that 18 months of roadmap, mm-hmm. but we don't need to raise crazy rounds. And right now what you're seeing is the, the market's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, the rounds that we're seeing, the valuations that people are getting, yeah. they're very, very high. And I think that 
we'll see the trend more and more. I think that it's going to affect companies that aren't trying to go for the moon, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Wistia wants to grow really, really aggressively, but they want to do it very much on their own terms. And um, I think that it's, it's going to be really hard for certain products. I think Wistia is going to definitely kind of win given their product mindset mm. and they're really good at building product. And so they're going to come out with third product, fourth product, et cetera. They're going to go the way of MailChimp and hopefully get to the size of MailChimp. But I think some of the other companies in the space that kind of do this, they're going to end up being, you know, a base camp, which is amazing. Mm. Like that's amazing. Like that's a, I would love to be a base camp, you know, just in terms of what the estimated revenue is and things like that, but they're not trying to be a billion dollar company and you just kind of have to know yourself. Uh, sure. So long story short, I think you're going to see it, but you just have to know what you want. And if you want to be a billion dollar company, you, it's going to be very hard not to raise money. Sure. Yeah. And, and one of the biggest levers for growth for ProfitWell has been, you know, your content and your blog that I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with. And I know they're also a very, very data-driven company, obviously. Yeah. Um, like what is the sort of ROI that, that you find that content brings for, for, for your company? So content is our main growth channel. Uh, I think that terribly we, I, I don't have like pure ROI numbers for you, but mm-hmm. Here, here's something to kind of think level, about. Yeah. yeah, here's something to kind of think about. So we went and, and we're going to write and probably publish more information about this later this year because we've started figuring a lot of stuff out. But um, we basically started exclusively focusing on the average number of pieces of content people were reading or looking at mm-hmm. per week. And the reason for that is because the average blog, you can expect the average blog and social strategy and SEO kind of mixed into there. We did this model the average number of touches, the max average, I should say, is about 1.6 touches per week. When you look at media companies, most of them are in the five to eight range. Uh, so like Bloomberg, you know, you look at Bloomberg every day or the Wall Street Journal or whatever your news of choice is. So what we've been trying to figure out is we know that when people read our content, we get more qualified leads who then convert to money. We don't know exactly what that looks like because our marketing tech stack is terrible right now. Um, we just hired a head of growth. We didn't have a marketing team until like January, February oh, okay. this year. So, And it was just literally just me writing and doing all this content. And yeah. we're a 60-person company and I'm the CEO writing and doing all the content. That's, yeah. that's a huge choke on the yeah. business. I think it was the exact same for Intercom. I mean, Daz, I think, wrote like 93 of our first Daz was writing and, posts. You know? Yeah, I've seen Daz at so many conferences <laughs> speaking and all these different things. And so... What, what we've done is we've tried to figure out how do we increase that max average. And so that includes more content. So we're putting together three video and written shows per week right now. Um, we're trying to get to five by the end of the year because that volume we know increases our touches. And then we need to optimize it so that maybe we increase even further based on distribution. I don't think we're really great at distribution of content right now. We're just kind of blunt with it. We just kind of send it out and hope people share. Uh, but that's kind of how we think about the ROI. We know that it increases down the path. And so we were like, all right, let's just try to increase the top because we're already trying to figure out um, getting more content people and media people to kind of take this on. And then eventually we'll probably get more sophisticated down down the funnel. Sure, so you're, you're kind of thinking at, at this stage it's kind of very much sort of like top of funnel, sort of like building the brand and then... Totally. Right. What we're trying to do, and, and it was really funny, is I there's there's this interview I did like the first month in this like janky startup, you know, magazine or something like that. Just, I was like so excited because I was like, oh, someone wants to interview us about this thing that I've been working on. And 
I, I think it's we're finally kind of fulfilling something I said, and I didn't know this was really what was going to happen. But I thought of us like, hey, we wanted to be a product company that was wrapped in a media company. And that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a media company uh, because that's if you look at media companies, they are the best in the world at content because that's their job. That's their product. They are the worst in the world at monetizing that traffic. Mm -hmm. Subscription and SaaS companies are the best companies in the world at monetizing mm -hmm. traffic. They're not so great at bringing traffic. I mean, they have to be pretty good, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, but they're not as good as media companies. And so that's kind of the mental model we work through. And we have a bunch of data, but it's hard to go through on a yeah, podcast. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting trend. I think you're going to see a lot of sort of content first, product second companies. I'm just thinking like yeah. Moz as an example. Like, you know, I think it's yeah. a trend that we're probably going to see uh, a lot more of. But obviously one of the challenges is that content at the moment is such a credited marketplace. And it seems like, you know, every company has a blog, pretty much everyone has a podcast, like, uh, it's very credit marketplace. So like, where do you look for the fertile territory here? Yeah, I, I, frankly, I don't. So, so the reason is, is because look at whenever you get a chance, if you're interested in this, start looking at very niche podcasts that have insane followings. Uh, there's a podcast on Mongolian history. You would think how deep can Mongolian history go? it's got 80,000 monthly followers, right? And they're not Mongolian. They're all in the U.S. Um, and so it's just kind of fascinating. Like, like I'm very interested in seeing those types of, like what those types of people mm -hmm. have done because that's where there's the most leverage. It's not like they spent a ton of money on ads and everything to drive traffic mm -hmm. and kind of built this inorganically. And what you'll notice with those types of people is that, they're the ones who are focused exclusively on audience. And that's, that's what's kind of been lost in the world of content marketing because mm -hmm. it's all been about, well, the blog is for SEO, social, it's its own you know, strategy and its own channel. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to basically take you know, lessons from what a Bloomberg or the Skim would do, which is kind mm -hmm. of a modern take on media, and basically build audiences. Mm -hmm. And we're okay, hey, if you just subscribe to one show, that's great, it's gonna come each week. But we're gonna have people who subscribe to every single thing we do, and that's great. Right, and that builds that max average up. So, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're good yet. We're still trying to like figure this out. Um, but it's something that we're 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 pretty pumped to kind of figure out the chokes in the process. Sure, because I think in, in marketing is always the hunt for you know the latest channel or the latest medium or you know yeah. the new sort of ebook or the new podcast. But you know maybe there's nothing wrong with the existing sort of mediums and playbook that we have. I think the problem is is that we're not getting brand new channels. We're not, th there hasn't been a major channel since Instagram, like a major channel, right? And then before that, we were getting at least one major channel a year. And there was this heyday back in the early 2000s up to you know 2010 where we were getting almost a new channel every single quarter because you were getting Google AdWords and then you were getting Google Display Network and then Google Remarketing and then all of these different things where it was like these just giant things mm -hmm. opening up. And now it's like leveling off. We actually have the data that shows that channels are leveling off. And so it's, it's most channels then go through these weird stages where, you know, they, they become new again, right? And right. so you've seen that with email. Um, it's become new again a bit. And then you're going to see this with content, I'm sure, because now there's a lot of people starting to do like show-based or episodic content. Uh, it's just going to kind of keep cycling like most things. And who knows? I'm sure there's going to be major channels that open up and you should, you know, take advantage of them. But we've kind of taken it. We don't have the bandwidth to go hunt those new channels. And so we're going to kind of go after it. And as we kind of build out the growth team, I think we'll we'll definitely exploit some new channels. I, I'm very interested in um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by looking at channels that have just been destroyed by 
just terrible sales and marketing people. Um, right. Like not, direct mail or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're not they're not maybe like inherently terrible people, but they're just the terrible practices, right? Like I think cold email, I think cold email is terrible at this point. But we've found a way to be really, really good at cold email. Mm. Um, we found a process, and this is some of the stuff that you know a lot of you know growth engineers have been working on and published. But we found like a good way to do it. Direct mail. We found a way to do direct mail pretty decently right now. I don't think we're great at it, but we're better than most. And it really just comes down to a lot of the things that Intercom talks about. I think a lot of the things that a lot of us know, which is you know creating a good experience, treating people like people. And not being so pushy. You got to be a little pushy because, you know, your targeting isn't going to be 100%. Mm-hmm. So you're inevitably going to have some bugs that, you know, people are aggravated. And frankly, we we still do some pushy tactics. We have too many, like, pop-ups and modals on the page and things like that. And we're, we're new redesigns. We're taking a lot of those down um, because the content volume is high enough now. But I'm really interested in these these kind of markets or these channels that people are doing really poorly because, most of the growth hackers aren't there because they're like, oh, I've moved on. I'm trying to figure something else out. And I'd rather go really quality in those channels or at least try. Cool. So on that note, I mean, everything old is new again, sounds like. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah Patrick, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, anyway, thanks, so. This is great. Cheers. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.